turn my mic on. Mic's even louder than I am. <clears throat> uh, dinner tonight at 5. Uh, hamburger and hot dogs here at the hall being hosted by Kirby and Jocelyn. And I think there's some goodies for campfire later and you can do some games in here if you wish. Uh, kind of make it a an open evening for different activities. So tonight at 5, and also for uh, Thursday, this hadn't been announced because it hadn't been all set up, but after we have our meeting at Zion at 11 on Thursday, there's a place there at, uh, called Porter's, it's at the Bumbleberry Inn, I believe, uh, that will serve us lunch. And that's compliments of Al and George. They did this for a year, and then they did it for another year, and then they did it for another year, and now they can't get out of it. It's a habit. So I appreciate them chipping in for lunch for us at the feast. So it's on them. We can, uh, we'll mention it again Thursday, of course. Uh, they said they had set up tables for us between 12 and 1, so we'll be right there close. It's just a short hop down to Bumbleberry from where we'll be meeting. I looked at the calendar a little while ago, and I almost panicked. This is already the second day, nearly over, and it only showed six more. You know how fast six days goes by when you're having fun? Too fast. So uh, hang on and appreciate it while it's here because it won't last long. Anyway then, I think that's it in the form of regular announcements. We'll have special music. This will be done by George and Gloria entitled Emmanuel, Our Best Friend. can't hear me, so I know this is going to be good. <laughs> you called us for your purpose. You brought love like we've never known. You give life to your children and to us a reason to go on. You're the bread when we're hungry. You're the shelter from troubled winds. You're the anchor 
in our solution, but most of all, you're our best friend when we need hope and inspiration. You're always strong when we're tired and weak. We could search this whole world over. You'd still be everything that we need. You're the bread when we're hungry. You're the shelter from troubled winds. You're the anchor in life's ocean. Most of all, you're our best friend. You're the bread when we're hungry. You're the shelter from troubled winds. You're the anchor in life's ocean. But most of all, you're our best friend. that concept of God and Christ himself being our best friend is not a one that I had really, uh, I guess, accepted or comprehended until a few years ago. Uh, God had made comments about Moses being his friend and I think Abraham and maybe at the most two or three people. And uh, I always thought, wow, what a select company to be in, to be a friend of God. And I never thought that I could ever reach that kind of a relationship with him. And then one time I focused on what Christ really said to the disciples there, where he offered them friendship. And not only friendship for them, but he was uh, giving that final lecture, final speech, final teaching to them to pass along to all of us who would follow. And he truly was offering friendship to all of us. And I still have a certain amount of difficulty with that. Because I realize that he is everything that a friend could be with the kind of love he has for all of us down here. And it's so hard to rise up to the type of friend that he is, to be that kind that he would look to that way. But he said he does, and he said also he spoke of those things that are not as if they already were. So we may not be quite the kind of friend he wants yet, 
but we're on his friendship list. He hasn't unfriended us, to use a social term. We're, we're on his friendship list. And hopefully, as time goes by, we can get higher on that list, where we can truly have the kind of relationship with him and the Father that is a close friendship. And I know I've been working on that one in my own thoughts and prayers for some time. Uh, I want to hold him in reverence and in great glory, and yet at the same time, the relationship with God, between God and man, has to be on many levels, and he has stated it that way, that it is father, son, or with Christ, brother and brother, or husband and wife, or friends with both of them, and it's been stated many, many times with human beings that when it comes to business or church or various other things in our relationships, that you couldn't both be business associates and friends, or you couldn't be boss and friends. You couldn't be pastor and friends, uh, because we are so weak and so inept and so lacking in self-control and love and all the things that God's qualities are, that generally that is somewhat true with human relationships. So in the military, the officers have their quarters, the enlisted people have their quarters, and in business, it's always been separated to some degree, and in church it has been. Now, I've not subscribed completely to that at my own risk over the years, because I want to be close to the people and be able to sit around the campfire and visit and joke with one another and not lose the respect of the office. But the danger is that you realize they're human, they realize you're human, and things can break down if we're not careful, because we're all very human. But God wants us to be close, and we should be able to overcome the carnal human things that are there, like in the military, uh, you should respect the rank of the officer. You should respect, perhaps, his knowledge and his experience and realize that there's somebody you must follow in the battle. And there needs to be a level of trust there, not just a, I'm going to kick you if you don't do what I say. So somewhere in there there's a balance, but human nature is what creates the problem. And we should be able to be friends among ourselves and still maintain respect for office and job and so on that needs to be. And if you go through the epistles of Paul, 
you'll find that he refers to certain people in a very friendly, friendship type of uh, relationship. At other times he calls them my little children uh, because of his age and his job and responsibility. And sometimes he approaches them in a very authoritarian manner and tells them this is the way the bear went through the buckwheat. Uh, this is it and no buts about it. So he used those various relationships, even as God and Christ do, and we need to replicate those things as best we can, uh, realizing all of us are very human, and that's something we often fight when we first come into the church, in fact, is we think, well, we found it. This is God's church, and everything's going to be good. Everything's going to be right. Everything's going to be beautiful. And then we wake up uh, a short time later and find out, oh, everything's not beautiful and everything's not perfect yet and everything's not the way I'd like to see it, maybe. Uh, and it becomes a shock and it can be disconcerting and even discouraging. Uh, but then you look around and realize, well, i got to overcome, so does everybody else. And then if you actually look in the scripture, instead of looking at people and saying, well, they're imperfect, and you see the problems that the New Testament ministry dealt with in the church, day in and day out, there were still a lot of people with a lot of serious problems who were there, and were having to be dealt with in various forms and fashions. So as we grow, we realize this is a learning process for all of us, and it's one that never ends until we draw our last breath on this earth in a human way. And Pete Paul was willing to say, everything I want to do, I can't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. And he'd been an apostle for years when he said that. He was still struggling with his human nature because it's always there. <laughs> It never goes away until we receive the nature of God at the resurrection. So it's a fight to the finish. And we all have to recognize that in each other. And that's where love overcomes our lack. We love our children. And yet, they're far from perfect. But our love is unconditional. From the time they're this long till... They're looking down on us in our chair uh, as we fade out. We still love them, no matter what their lives have done, where they've been, how their life has been led. We still love them. Sometimes it's a struggle to like them. Uh, sometimes it's a struggle to put up with them. Uh, but we never quit loving them. And that's the way God is with us. And that's the way we have to become with each other, is making allowance for our weaknesses, our faults, our sins, our difficulties, and loving each other in spite of it. Uh, we have no room for uh, not forgiving, no room for grudges, no room for staying angry. 
fact, God limits it. He says, well, you can get angry. Be angry and sin not. Don't let your anger take you to attitudes you shouldn't have. But he says, whatever your anger is, get over it by sundown. So I've tried to choose personally. If I'm going to get angry, I want to do it right after sundown. That way I can give myself 24 hours to be mad. <laughs> no, I guess. But uh, we're supposed to bring those under control and get over them. So if you're angry at somebody for something they've said or done to you, uh, maybe they did sin. But you've got what's left of the day to get over it and not hold it to their account. And I'm glad that God forgives us very quickly, too. If we come to Him with the right attitude and ask for His mercy and His forgiveness, He does so. And then we, in turn, have to turn around and be as God is to us, to others who might have hurt us, offended us, put us down, made a mistake, snubbed us, cussed us, whatever they did. It's a growth process. Anyway, that song just reminded me of that, so I gave you a sermon out. So let's get on back to Isaiah then. <clears throat> we got into chapter 11, and how a rod will come out of the stem of Jesse, and God is working through um, the family of Israel always and opening it up to the Gentiles as well, but he looks to Israel for leadership, and we have let him down so much, so often, that it's difficult. But he's patient. And he said, because of Abraham's obedience, not because we're so wonderful, but because of Abraham's obedience, he will continue to work with us and He'll make sure everything works out in the long run. Because, as I said yesterday, Paul says all Israel shall be saved there in Romans 11:26. So most people, one way or another, he's going to take us from where we were and what we were to where he wants us to be. And he works his salvation in us. Uh, we don't do much of it. We try, we work, we seek to grow and to overcome, but being imperfect, it all comes down in the long run to grace and mercy and forgiveness, because eternal life is a gift, not something we can possibly earn. But anyway, he's going to raise up a leadership led by the Spirit of God. And I started into this showing how this is to be ahead of time, just before the millennium, that he begins to show his leadership through the two and through the remnant that he will draw together as a witness to the world of what his kingdom is going to be like so that a contrast can be drawn between what Satan is doing in the times of the Gentiles and what God is doing with his small remnant. 
It starts out pretty dramatically, really, uh, because he has to protect the temple building, the Jerusalem building. He has to then deliver from there when he allows the beast to come in and defile the temple to get them to Zion safely. And then he has to have them completely protected there for the next three and a half years uh, while the tribulation and the times of the Gentiles rages over the earth. So, he's going to make a special situation. And I think I can show that here just in a few verses, that it is a, a thing that occurs for a short time before the millennium and then during the millennium. Let's go down and we'll see that here in a little bit. Now in verse 4, it says, But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove the ec- with equity for the meek of the earth. That are only, those are only those who are serving him. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So it's interesting that in this context here, of sending righteous leadership, we're still in the time period where he's smiting the earth with his rod. So it isn't millennial yet. Uh, millennial, he puts the rod away, that is the rod of anger, and rules with a, with a firm hand, but not with the rod doing slaying. That will be over at that point. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So he's going to work through someone as he did Abraham, as he did Moses. In fact, in Malachi 4, he mentions Moses, and he does the same thing in the Transfiguration, where he has Moses and Elijah come uh, in the vision, and John the Baptist of Elijah. So he uses the characters of Moses and Elijah as a depiction of the end-time leaders. That's very clear in the Scripture. And he says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. We've always read these just about the millennium. And they do sit there, certainly. That wasn't a wrong use. It's just that we didn't understand the short former use just before that, uh, in a conversation last night with someone, it just it triggered a thought in my mind that we were talking about Ambassador College and what a wonderful, beautiful place that was, and the people that I was vis- talking with in the moment had not seen it uh, earlier, but that was one of the most fabulous places in, in uh, Pasadena on earth. You could hardly believe the quality of the buildings. Those buildings were virtually given to Herbert Armstrong when he went there in 1947 to start the college. The mansion of Hewlett C. Merritt, who was, uh, I think, a tycoon in iron and steel and metal, if I recall properly. Might have been something else. But his mansion was one of our classrooms. And we had formal things there. The woods 
in those buildings would absolutely take your breath. Felix C. Merritt had imported from Asia and other places the very finest, most beautiful woods on the face of the earth. The Rosewood Room would just absolutely take your breath. I've seen beautiful buildings out of walnut and cherry and various things. They wouldn't touch this. Wouldn't even touch it. And it was solid wood, not just little boards. Just incredible. And round columns made with it. Today, a building like that, I don't know who could pay for it. I mean, if you were to try to... Some of those woods are not even available today. They were limited then, and you can't even get them today. And there was, on this hill in Pasadena, a string of those mansions. And I lived in what we called Manor del Mar, and everything was made with beautiful woods like that. There was not a stick of drywall in there. <laughs> there was nothing of modern construction in sight anywhere. And it was literally breathtaking. And I got to live there and walk through those buildings that had owned, been owned by these multimillionaires who would be way up in the billionaires today in the, with the same amount of money they had then. And the grounds were kept perfectly. It was just almost heaven on earth. Uh, it was almost like Eden. Well, the smog kind of messed it up. But then you saw pictures of the house made for the great God. What a beautiful building that was. And I got to go there and sit there, speak there, sing there. Uh, the gymnasium they built that we played basketball in every day would make any of the ones in the big colleges across the country look cheap by comparison. What an incredible building that was. And I got to play there every day. And I look back and Herbert Armstrong had his G6, G5 it was, Drummond 5, now, that plane is still being used by some of the billionaires in the elite of the world today. They still use the G5 and the G6. And Ted had the Learjet. And we had pictures of those. And in some ways, I thought it was a little ostentatious. And yet, on the other hand, as I look back now and realize what God was doing, He was making... Out of the worldwide church of God and a small bunch of people by comparison to the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Mormons, the Methodists, the Baptists, he was taking this small group of people and giving them monetary blessings that were amazing. And we were able to afford those things. And it would have been hard, really, frankly, for Mr. Armstrong to go to all the different capitals of the world uh, on just a regular plane as his age and health got weaker and weaker. Uh, but he could jump on that jump on. He could totter up under that G5 and go anywhere. 
and be there. But it gave to the world who paid attention, and he visited a lot of world leaders. Right at the top, the presidents, the kings, went and visited with them, gave them Waterford Crystal as gifts and various things. And as I look back, it was a minor fulfillment of what I'm talking about right here. But it gave the world a view of how God could bless a people in a lesser way than he's about to do it. And he says there very clearly in Haggai that the glory of the former house will not come anywhere near the glory of the latter house. But there will be old men around who saw both and can make the comparison. It's coming soon. Because there aren't many of us left who saw that in the way that it was then. And when I went to Brickett Wood, it was the same way. What a beautiful campus. Gorgeous. Fine, expensive buildings we got for almost nothing. I mean, the church wasn't very big in 47 when he got all those mansions. And he got them for a song. It was almost like they were given to the church. And really, they were. Because it could have, there's no way those buildings could have been afforded with the budget that then was. I mean, the plain truth and the broadcast were still young back then and hadn't reached much. But it grew so beautifully and so fa- uh, fabulously. Even Big Sandy out in the Piney Woods, they built some beautiful buildings and it was, it was just a lovely, gorgeous place. Anybody visited there, they were truly impressed. Not in the same way from the fabulous wealth of Pasadena, or Brickett Wood for that matter. But here was I, nothing and nobody from Podunk, Texas, and I got to live and walk in those places. I went to high school at Big Sandy in those fine buildings. Went to college in Pasadena, got to visit Brickett Wood. And be shoulder to shoulder with that kind of wealth, that kind of, in a sense, fame. And I was nothing. Still am nothing. And always will be until made something by God at the resurrection. But God allowed us. I mean, where did the students for ambassador come from? Like me, just here, there, and everywhere. They weren't anything special. They weren't Yale and Harvard people, you know. Just average run-of-the-mill people got to go to a place like that. That's unusual. Try it. Go through town. Go through Podunk, Kansas and pick out a couple people and say, I'm going to show you some wonderful things. Well, how are you going to do that? Where are you going to take them? Who do you know that will get you into places like I lived? Nobody. It can't be done. You'll be real lucky if you score a backstage pass at some rock concert. You know, that's about the best you'll get. Period. Well, God opened things up, is what, is what I'm telling you this. And 
maybe I pass over some of these things sometimes because they're part of my experience, but you didn't experience those things. Some of you weren't even born who are adults today, almost mid-age, weren't even born when Herbert Armstrong died. So maybe it's good once in a while to go back and look at a little bit of history that I experienced and share it with you because you have no other way of knowing it. And for me to put it in a few words here doesn't do it justice. You have to get out one of those colored envoys to show the pictures of some of these buildings. And those of you who have seen those who have been to Ambassador and taken the tour, you know what I'm talking about. Now, he did that with Worldwide, which he was going to shortly thereafter spew out. What is he going to do at the end time with the latter temple that has to be much greater, not only spiritually, but physically as well? Now, if you're going to show people in the world what God can do, you can't show them spirituality, if you will. What is in their heart and their mind and what they do on Sabbath or holy days, you can't go to the beast and say, that's special. that person's special because they keep Saturday. That won't impress them. What are they impressed with? Wealth? Power? All things that God can imbue upon His church. And we know from Isaiah 44 and 45, coupled with other scriptures, that the greatest repository of gold and silver and gems and treasures, art treasures, historical treasures, probably original manuscripts of the Bible, uh, the graves of some of the patriarchs where they're mummified, the mountain's going to crack open and those things will be seen, but they'll be in the possession of the church. The greatest wealth known to man with more gold than Russia, China, India, and all the countries combined have today. God will go way above and beyond that. And he's going to give it to his church. Those temple uh, vessels can go right into the temple where they came from. But what he is going to do is going to be an absolute amazing thing. Now, I think I read to you just the other day at the end of Daniel 11, where it says when the beast comes in and the false prophet and they set up the abomination of desolation, they will have charge of all those golden treasures. It will be given to them. Because what is it? The church has them. The temple contains them. But the church has to flee for their lives to Zion. And here the devil will have all the treasures of God. Don't tell that to Ross LeBaron. He'll have a heart attack right after his stroke. But that's what the scripture says be turned over to the world, to Satan. And he'll continue to protect his people 
apart from physical riches. Those things impress the world. God will say, okay, I'm going to protect my people. I'll take care of them. There it is. Have it. See what good it does you. Because I'm going to send two prophets out, and they're going to put plagues on you, and they're going to tell you about the protection of his people. And the beast and the false prophet are going to be right there not more than 20, 30 air miles away from where God is protecting them. And they're going to come and go, I think, on a daily basis from Zion, kind of flick by Jerusalem on their way out to Thailand or somewhere for that day. And the beast can't do a thing about it. Because God is God. But during that time, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Not so possible in this world today. There's the wolves and the coyotes and the lions and the bears and the poisonous snakes and all these things that did not probably exist at all when God recreated the earth and made Eden. Because when he created Eden, he made it a perfect place with a perfect climate for people to live and there was no danger anywhere whatsoever. It was perfectly climate controlled because it says they were naked and not ashamed. So, they weren't cold, they weren't hot, the temperature was absolutely perfect to the human skin. When they did get clothes, it wasn't because of the weather, it was because of shame. They had done what God told them not to do, and they didn't have anything around, so they used leaves to cover themselves. Then God made them clothes out of animal skins, out of leather. Things had changed. But right then and there, it was absolutely perfect. No goat heads, no foxtails, no tumbleweeds. None of these noxious things that we fight today were there. It was perfect. And then God said when he turned them out, I'm going to give you thorns and thistles and you'll make a living by the sweat of your brow and life's going to be tough, buddy. And it's been that way ever since. But not until. And that's what he's describing here is how he's going to make it again like that. Throughout the millennium, it will, will be Edenic. No more of the trouble that we have today. You plant something, it'll grow and produce. All the animals will get along. The cow and the bear will feed together. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Have you ever watched a cat or a dog try to eat grass? Sometimes when they're not feeling well, they'll kind of chew at it and, and try to get some grass down. I guess if they're not feeling well, they think maybe something green will help them feel better. 
but they'll literally eat grass. But, man, it's a tough chore. Their teeth aren't made for that. They're made for chewing meat. And you give them grass, and it's, it's fun to watch. It's comical. But he's going to change their teeth so that they can eat alongside the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the poisonous snake, and the winged child shall put his hand on the adder's den, it says in the Hebrew. So, snakes will still have their holes, but the kids will be able to play there, and you won't have to be looking, oh, is there a snake there? What's it like? I grew up in an area where there were rattlesnakes. It's the only poisonous thing around. But we were taught from an early age to beware and be careful and watch where you step and don't go running through the grass, which we didn't pay much attention to. Uh, But they were around, and we learned to tease them, and we learned to kill them. But West Texas was not like a lot of places. You get into Africa and South America and Asia, and they got some nasty buggers. Australia, since I said buggers. I mean, you can die within minutes after being bitten by a lot of those snakes. I've hunted in those areas, and I was very careful. Fortunately, it was the time of year when they're mostly dormant, even though it wasn't hot cold. It was near the equator, but they still were not very active. So once in a while I'd see a snake track, or I looked down and there was a python this big around curled up by my foot one time, which kind of gives you a start. But those little kids in those areas grow up with that stuff. And with lions, it can just pick them up and carry them out in the woods and eat them. And leopards in Asia. But your life is in jeopardy if you go in the woods today. <laughs> it just is. And they lose a lot of people. Hippopotamuses kill people on a regular basis. More killed by hippopotamus than anything else in Africa. They're very territorial in the water and they'll attack you. You don't have to poke them with something. They'll come after you. So God has made a lot of things on this earth that are very, very dangerous today. But he says he's going to change all that. And there'll be no danger... They shall not hurt, verse 9, nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the eternal as the waters cover the sea. Now he's projecting this into the millennium now. Notice as we read on down. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an instant of the people, to which shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Now he's saying almost the same words here that he set up in verse 2 and 3 and 4. Why is he repeating it? I think primarily because he's speaking of the leader of the remnant end time church more specifically in those first verses, and he's speaking of Christ himself more specifically here in verse 10. Notice then in 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that the eternal uh, 
shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and Egypt and Petros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and from the islands of the sea the second time. What he's going to do as we read through Isaiah 40 and forward is gather the remnant of spiritual Israel from around the world, from the four corners, I think it mentions in chapter 44 of Isaiah, and other places. He's going to gather the church, the remnant, from around the world for the first gathering. And he's going to give them Edenic conditions to show the world what God is capable of doing as opposed to just converting your mind. He'll convert the earth around Zion and Jerusalem, the promised land. And then he's going to extend what he started there so that it goes over the whole earth. And this time he's going to gather physical Israel from all over the world, from these different countries where we have been taken captive by the Assyrians that we just talked about in this very context. Who comes in and takes the people of this nation Catholic? It's captive, not Catholic. It won't be Catholic. It'll be something similar. But uh, Satan did set the Catholic Church up as and in opposition to uh, the Church that Christ started. That's another story. But the second time he'll gather, and this time it's physical Israel. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel. Not the faithful, not the true, not the spiritual Jew, but the outcasts of Israel. And gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now notice some follow-up in verse 13 to show that this picture is correct. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Now where did we read recently that it would be just the opposite of that? Go back to chapter 9 and verse 21. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. So, they're going to be at odds, they're going to be fighting with one another, and here, he says, that's going to stop. That the fighting, the infighting, the brothers fighting each other in Israel will cease. They won't do that anymore. They'll repent. They'll give it up. They'll quit fighting. They'll get rid of their pride and be humbled and meek and serve God. So he's really talking about two periods of time here. One very short, five, six years, and the other a thousand years of what he sets up earlier. And remember, in this context, that he says he will be a wall of fire around the promised land there in Zechariah 2. So the beast and the false prophet can't do a thing about it. 
God will set up a perimeter that they can't cross. And again on the weather, we've read this several times, but the end of chapter 4, which we read recently. Uh, verse 5, And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion, and upon her assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Now, didn't he do something similar with Israel in the desert uh, as they wandered in the wilderness? He gave them signs. He gave them clouds. He had a pillar of fire that moved when he wanted them to move. So, this is all stuff God's done before, but he's going to do it in the promised land again. <coughs> and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and rain. Now that tells you right there that this is still premillennial. You won't need in the millennium when the weather is perfect, the temperature is perfect, there are indications in Scripture that the watering will come from underneath and sub-irrigate the plants, which is more efficient than irrigating or rain even. So this is a time when you still need a canopy to keep the storm and the rain off and to keep the temperature correct. Because outside that bubble, it won't be that way. It'll still be like it is today. So he's setting this up. So the nations of Israel will stop envying each other. Uh, and this shows here that the second part of the chapter is talking about the millennium worldwide. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And it will not ever be that way prior to the millennium. There will still be the seals, the seven trumps, the seven last plagues, terrible things happening on the earth. And knowledge of God will be very, very scarce and only being distributed by two men. That's all. And the world will not listen. Pay no attention. So they're not going to vex each other anymore, verse 13, the tribes of Israel. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. So God is again going to cause Israel, physical Israel, to take the lead. He is going to make them live up to the responsibility he gave them that we've never lived up to. And the Eternal shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. This is everything that's leading up to these conditions we're talking about here. And with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river and smite it in the seven streams and make men go over dry shot, like Jordan, like the Red Sea. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria, like it was to Israel in the day they came up out of the land of 
Mitzrayim. So, he's going to make it possible for those who survive the Holocaust to come back. And it'll be a little less than 10%, as uh, Ezekiel shows. So we've got 330 million people today, roughly. Uh, be like 30 million, maybe, will be left. That's all. Something like that. But they'll come back and be given their land again. So, that part of it is what we're here observing today. Is the millennial part, the thousand year part. But we have to understand what I've been explaining and have said before. But it's a new concept we never had in the church before. Of what God is going to do here at the end time to show the world who he is. And make no mistake about it, it says right there in Isaiah 45 that when those temple treasures and that gold and silver is unearthed, it will be used to show from east to west around the world that God is God. They cannot deny it. Why? Because it's not just piles of gold. It's also records. It's history. It's math. It's all the things that will prove where the promised land is that you can't show anybody today. They won't listen. But they can't deny it. The obvious, the evidence will be right there, obvious. So that happens in you and I, as physical human beings, we do our part, are going to be part of that. Be able to show the world that God is God. You know, I can think of no greater honor, no greater opportunity on this earth than to show people here, there, and everywhere who God is. You and I have learned about God. We don't know Him as well as we need to. We're getting to know Him. We're going through a process of courtship with Christ, of friendship with the Father and the Son, <coughs> learning what it's like to be true brothers and to be a real son. We're going through all these things, and to me it's exciting to know God because hardly anybody on earth today knows him for what he is. They know of his name. They don't know of him as a being. They don't know his character. They don't understand him. They don't know anything about him because they haven't, most of them, read much of this. So they just don't know. And they don't know what they don't know. And then we'll be able to show them and they still won't get it. And they're going to have to nearly all be killed before they can come up in a second resurrection and say, hmm, maybe I was wrong. Maybe there is a God. He'll get their attention. But he's going to try to get their attention. He's got to give them that chance. God doesn't do anything unless he warns through his servants the prophets. So the beast and the false prophet are going to be well warned 
And then at the end of it all, when they haven't repented, Christ is going to take them by the nap of the neck and throw them in the fire. That's what the next rulers of this world are going to go through. Now notice chapter 12 is tied in very closely with what we just read there about a time of total peace and no danger anywhere on God's holy mountain. Then you're truly into the millennium. It'll be in a very small area first, but then over the whole world. And in that day, you shall say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comforted me. Now, David wrote a lot of psalms where he was asking for God's comfort. He still had enemies. He had his own sons that wanted to kill him. He had Saul up to a certain point who threw things at him and tried to kill him. He had a tough life, really. All kinds of enemies that he had to fight. But he would pray for God's deliverance and help. And that's what we're doing today. And when this all happens to us before the millennium and to all of Israel that's left at the beginning of the millennium, this is a chapter we can go back and read. It is some words that we won't have to read. We will be so, so filled with the joy and praise and honor and glory to God that the word he says right here will come naturally. You won't have to say, I should pray a prayer. And I remember a good one back in Isaiah 12. I'll go back and read that. You won't need to. Okay? Look what it says. You were angry. You spewed us out. And now you've brought us together. You've made us whole. That's going to be a wonderful feeling. You know what? They're going to come with singing to God to Zion. The God is finally delivered. They'll come with singing to God at the beginning of the millennium when they see the Father and the Son come down in the new Jerusalem. And it is going to be absolutely awe-inspiring for most. So these words will come naturally. You comforted me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Think we can sing that once you're changed into spirit? If a piece of trumpets are nearby that. And you're no longer human. And you sing a new song to the Lord that only the 144,000 can sing. And it'll be so full of joy and excitement and inspiration. And only you can sing it. Only 144,000. The angels apparently can't even sing this song. It's reserved for the bride of Christ. It'll just come out of you. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Christ is the water. He is the life. 
He's the living water. And you'll draw water from Him. He's the well. He's the source of living water. And in that day shall you say, Praise the Lord. Call upon His name. Declare His doings among the people. Make mention that His name is exalted. You know, often because of the way the Protestants use it, and people say, praise the Lord all the time. It's like it's kind of a, a fill-in. <laughs> praise the Lord. This happened. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord. And pretty soon to me, it's like it's a meaningless, empty thing that you're just repeating out of rote. And I don't say it very often. Once in a while, if I'm really inspired, I might say, praise the Lord. But not very often because of the misuse that I've heard. But then it's going to come out of you. It's, it's going to be natural. You will have been delivered. And you can't think anything but praise the Lord. Then it will be used in the way it was intended. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. We'll all be so excited. We'll just we'll be chattering and talking and praising God. Sing to the Eternal, for He has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Here you're definitely in the millennium, because these things will only be known to a small remnant until that time. But here it will be to all the earth. So it's definitely a millennial context here in chapter 12. Cry aloud and shout, you inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the middle of you. Now we can say this when he says he comes and dwells with us as we build a temple, but not like then. But we'll still be dwellers in Zion, won't we? Because the Holy Jerusalem is coming down at the beginning of the millennium. I firmly believe that now. And the Father and the Son will be there as the temple of it. And the waters will come out from under the throne and go to all the nations to heal them. Which means that the continents will have been drawn back together so that the waters can reach all the land and heal the whole earth. So God is going to heal it during the millennium. And it's going to be like we just read. The animals can all lie down together. There'll be no poisonous snakes, no thorns, no thistles. The temperature will be perfect. I doubt we'll go naked anymore. Uh, that kind of went away when they ate of the, what they should not eat. And, and the knowledge of good and evil came in lust. And all the things that go with human nature uh, are here. And they'll still be there during the millennium. We'll be spirits. And I don't know exactly what that means. But uh, the weather will be nice. And you won't need many clothes. Let's put it that way. But I don't think people will be running around naked in the millennium. I sincerely doubt that. But the conditions will be wonderful. That's what you're here to do is picture this 
Now I'm going to refer to one more scripture in close. That's Zechariah 14 and 16. I want to go back and read that to us. I like to go, I like to address it every feast because it is very, very important. And it's still early in the feast. So let's go there. This is the time it's talking about. Verse 16. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So the whole earth will come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. They'll be living in the millennium. They'll be living in the time that you and I are now picturing by being here at the Feast of Tabernacles. But why will they come up? What will be the purpose? To worship the king, and that's it. Who will be residing and presiding over the earth during that time? Christ himself. And he's the one that brings all this peace. He's the one that rules and keeps it peaceful and won't let people fight. Won't let them war. Won't let them steal. Isaiah thirty twenty one. You start to do something and somebody will tap you on the shoulder and say, uh-uh, we don't do that here. That isn't allowed. Ooh. Because he will enforce peace. No murder. No thievery. No lying. No cheating. No adultery. Nothing will be done that is contrary to the word of God. And it will be utterly secure and peaceful and beautiful. That's what we're here to picture. So we've got only six days left. And a part of one a little bit here. To live in peace and harmony and love and kindness and get along beautifully with each other and not get offended or not give offense. And to make this six days as much like the kingdom of God as we can. To feast, to enjoy food and drink on a physical level. But the overall thing we must do is worship the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what we're here to do. Now we, by His Spirit and prayer, can work toward being millennial. Being like Him. Kind of like I said the other day, we're all types of Christ. And it varies in how much we are like Him. You know, it came to my mind, can you look in the mirror and say, I see God. Can you do that? I haven't yet much. Now, there are some people that would look in the mirror and say, yeah, I see God. (laughs) I'm it. That has a little bit of vanity involved. But as we live, and we become more like Him in our thoughts, in our ways, we should be able to see Him in us 
and we better hope he sees himself in us. That's the key right there. Does God see you as him? How much like him have we become? Now, it's a scary proposition, I guess, because it could be discouraged. (laughs) Because we're not anywhere near like God as we ought to be. But we're in a process. It's like growing up. You know, a kid's a kid, and they're going to be a kid till they grow up. And you're going to deal with them until they grow up. And God is the same, and he's made the example the same. We're his little children, and we are to grow up. And Paul even used that with the church. Oh, my little children, they were just new converts. They didn't even understand some of them yet that they shouldn't eat unclean meats. You know, so some of those very simple things that he didn't give them right at first because he thought it would be too much for them to chew on. So he gave them a little truth, and then he'd give them a little more, and they would grow, and they would accept and learn. He didn't want to give them too much lest they get discouraged and quit, or it'd be just too much for them. So he gave them, and God has been giving us more and more opportunity. He's been giving us more and more knowledge and understanding of these things. And he's working with us to get us there where he can see himself in us. And when he looks down and makes that judgment, is that one enough like me that I can change him in a moment in a twinkling and he'll be faithful and true to me forever and ever as I am to him? Enter my kingdom. It is my pleasure to give you the kingdom. I can think of no words I'd rather hear from the Father and the Son than it is my pleasure to give you my kingdom. Let's picture that here.